Thank you, Cheyenne and team, for helping us set the stage for our conversation in the book of Titus this morning. Uh, kids, we hope you have an awesome time down at Kids Zone. And again, we are grateful for the many that spend time with our kids, raising them up as the up-and-coming generation that's already in this church. We're thankful that many of our volunteers see that and help us serve with our children. So as I said, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And um, we're going to continue the series that we've been in, the book of Titus, over the last couple of weeks. Faith works. It's going to work in us. Pastor Nathan's had this image over the last several weeks of this tree with this vast root system. That's been the doctrine and beliefs. And then the growth that that gives us as the fruit and the tree at the top of the trunk there in the image. And he's talked quite a bit about this life of a consistent Christian. I think there's been a couple things this week that have tied in really well to this passage, even in our own church family, that I just want to help us kind of see how this text could meet a church as Paul wrote this to a church and a young pastor on the island of Crete in the first century. First, if you know, on Wednesday, we celebrated the life of Rick Blair. This passage is going to talk a lot about grace and what it does in us. Rick was someone who showed grace to others, and it put him... I think on the front lines on some very important acts of service and mentoring relationships in our community and high need areas, we got to see grace work out in the life of Rick and we're thankful for that. Also thankful for the church family and many that showed up to love Ruth and love her family well as we celebrated Rick. We're just proud of our church in doing that and ask you to continue to pray for her, check in on her uh, over the weeks to come. Also on Sunday, we heard from Keith and Deb Jones. They're missionaries to Italy. They have a church that they pastor called Veritas Church in Milan. I hope you took advantage of the reception after church on that Sunday to meet with Deb and Keith and get to know them a little better. We're so thankful they finally were able to meet and see us in person. That was a, a good time to catch up and hear from them. And there's something that he shared that I can't help but remember and kind of connect to where Titus must have been as he read this letter from Paul. And, it, and if you remember, when Keith was up here sharing on Sunday, he said that less than 1% of Italians, the nation of Italy, less than 1% of them identify as evangelical Christians. So Keith and Deb are in this church in Milan, building a church, witnessing to their neighbors, and they don't have the support of a, a somewhat or a vaguely Christian society. They don't run into other Christians. They are very much on their own, but for the help of God. And so I think whether it be Keith and Deb Jones or us as First Baptist Church in a culture that seems to be kind of headed one direction, and we seem to be quite opposed to it with what we believe and hold to as important, you might feel like you're on an island, uh, much like Titus was on an island in the first century as he served around Crete. In fact, in the first chapter of Titus, if you're just joining us for the first time in a long time. In the first chapter of Titus, Paul describes the Cretans using one of their own authors. And it's not a very good group of people to be around. So as I was thinking about this passage and thinking about what, what is the message for our church, what is the message for Titus, and even what is the message for Keith and Deb Jones and many of our missionaries who are overseas in places where they are part of the 1%, I would say this, the message in this uh, chapter and this text today for us and for them is that this is the why. This is how we live this kind of life as followers of Christ. Earlier on in the chapter, Paul gives roles to the people in the church. 
And those people in the church are older men mentoring younger men and older women mentoring younger women. And, and all of these roles exist within the church and within our church. But you know that that can get tiring, especially if you're in a, a culture or a, a surroundings where it's inhospitable to your church. You might be the only Christian or Christ follower in your family. You might be the only Christian or Christ follower in your workplace. And so maybe you're, like me at times, wondering, what is the why? Why can I do this? Why should I? So Paul says, Titus, here's the why. When you're wondering why you can continue, when you're wondering how folks like Keith and Deb stake a church out, follow on faith, and establish a church in Milan, Italy, where, where they're, they're less than the 1%, Paul would say, well, it's because. Because, for, Titus, for the grace of God has appeared. We've seen the grace in person. Grace in this passage is personified, but we're going to define it a little bit because it goes on to do things in this passage. It goes on to shape and change the way people live their lives. But the first and foremost thing that Paul says to Titus is that the grace of God appeared as a person. It appeared here. So think about the word grace. There's a lot of definitions in our society about grace and how it works uh, there's a lot of times where grace has strings attached or some kind of idea of mutual benefit. If I do a nice thing for them, they'll do a nice thing for me also. Well, that's not what he's talking about here. A lot of commentaries talk about unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor, something you don't earn. That applies well in this passage. Another definition, though, that I would use for this, for this word, because we, we use the word grace a lot, it can lose its meaning, as you look at this passage, I would say the grace of God working in this passage is that God acts towards you as though or as if you never sinned and rebelled to begin with. That God pursues you and acts in your best interest as though at the beginning of time, mankind never rebelled to begin with. That you didn't choose sin and fulfilling your flesh over him time and time again. And that this is the act of God in his grace. He acts as though you didn't do that. And it appeared, but it didn't just show up. It showed up like, think of if the cavalry came, but it was the other team's cavalry and they fought on your side. Or a rescue came as you were drowning in the sea and plucked you out of the ocean and plucked you in a, and put you in a life raft and you thought, how did you even know I was drowning? I never even called. It's this kind of appearance where it just showed up and you weren't even able to call out for it. So Paul says, if you're wondering why and how you can do this, what, how can you possibly live this kind of life? Titus, remember first that God's grace appeared. And it didn't just show up, it brought salvation. It brought, it brought this word that we use to represent the saving or that plucking out of this life and into Christ that happens to us as followers of Christ. I'm sorry, is that me, John? Okay. So we're going to use a lot of words that are often church words, like salvation, grace, and redemption in this passage. So Paul is saying grace showed up, but it's active. There's going to be two things in this passage that it does. First, it plucks you out, like I said, puts you in this rescue boat that is Christ. It saves you. And there's something very profound about this. Paul, as a Jew, knows that initially this was only available to Jews. In the story of the Old Testament, they were his treasured possession. They were the people God wanted to save. But through Christ, this has been availed to all people so that people like you or I, Gentiles, people who don't come from 
a Jewish background can have this salvation available to us. So Paul is trying to drive home just the enormity of the grace that God has shown us. And I would tell you, if you, if you can consider this this morning with me and, and maybe let it sit on you for a little while like it did this week as I prepared, when you consider just the enormity of this grace, unmerited grace, God acting towards me as if I had never rebelled and don't continue to rebel against him, and him bringing salvation that I don't deserve, if you can consider the enormity of this, this idea of grace, it will have the effect that Paul describes in the latter passage here. So it's available to all people, but we know and we believe at this church that although God in his grace avails salvation to all people, the door is open for all, that not all will respond to that. So my first challenge to you as we look at this passage, this is, this is the prerequisite, because this is where it will all come from. Have you responded to this grace? Do you realize that grace is available to you to save you and that you are indeed in need of saving, that, that the state that you're in is headed towards one des destination. That's eternal separation from God. So the prerequisite, the first thing that grace does is it shows up, appears out of nowhere, is that it saves us. But it gets better because the grace of God, much like him himself, is eternal. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't come save you and then move on to someone else. It exists continuing in your life. Second thing it does here Paul says in verse 12, grace is training us to renounce ungodliness. Now this is where it gets hard. So get a really good dose of understanding the bottomless grace of God that he showed you. Because now there's things that it's going to go to work on in our lives. Paul uses this word training, and I just want to give you a couple ideas of what that would look like. So for, for those of you who are in the corporate world, maybe you've made hires and you bring new people onto your business or to your uh, place of employment, and you have to train them in how to do your job. And so there's reviewing their performance, there's correcting their mistakes, and they're saying, hey, this is a better way to do what you're trying to do. This is how we do this here. I had a responsibility at my former job of training, and I can tell you to the point where the trainer makes such an impact on the trainee that you can tell who trained them before you got them. This is what so-and-so is really good at. So I know when I get this trainee, they're going to emulate him. They're going to emulate her. So it's this, it's this idea that they respond to the point of this training to where they emulate the trainer. So God, Paul is saying, Titus, when you see the effect of this grace, it's going to continue to work in your people. It's going to continue to work in you, Titus, and it's going to train you. It's going to make you do this better because we can't do it on our own. So there's that role of training like in a corporate responsibility, but also think about this as parenting because it's a little bit more than just one adult dealing with another adult. In parenting, if you've, if you've had the joy of being a parent or the challenge of being a parent, you know that you are truly in it for the long haul. Well, much like that, God is in it for the long haul with us in his grace. He does not give up. It's relentless. And it's like dealing with a young child who you tell how to do something over and over and over and over. And a lot of the times they follow you, but every once in a while they need discipline and they need correction. So Paul is using this word that also includes some discipline and correction in it. God is, through his grace, training us by disciplining us and correcting us to do these things that Paul outlines. So why do we need to renounce ungodliness? Well, we need to renounce ungodliness because Paul elsewhere says we were slaves to sin. We were imprisoned. And here in a moment, we're going to talk about the freedom from that imprisonment. But is it possible that you could be freed from that imprisonment and still act like you're slaves to sin and still act like you're imprisoned. 
So Paul knows, hey, respond to this training. When grace corrects you, don't do this. This is your old life. You are new in Christ now. Do this. Respond to that. And worldly passions. I don't think I have to educate you or tell anybody that the world has its own passions and desires and is hard-charging after self-fulfillment, individual destiny, just do what's right in your own eyes. Paul's saying grace is going to correct that in you because you're going to recognize that what's right in my own eyes is probably not what's best for me. What's right in my own eyes might not be the gracious thing for someone else. We're going to talk about things like vengeance and anger here in a moment. And I can tell you the worldly passions are almost against grace to begin with. So we have to renounce that. And grace is going to partner with us in training us to do that. And to live self-controlled. I think we could all understand that grace has a connection to self-control in some way because you think most of the time in regards to self-control, like how it relates to how you treat someone else. Like they, they disadvantage me. Maybe you have a sibling. Maybe, maybe you have a sibling that, you know, takes your stuff. So you want to retribute and take their stuff back. Maybe you have a business partner who harms you and you want to punish them. You want to seek vengeance. Paul's saying, like, within the church and outside of the church, if you have a, a grasp of the massive grace that God showed you and I, it changes the way you pursue vengeance. It changes the way you act towards other people because you understand grace evens the playing field. There's no longer this level of debt for that person, this level of debt for the other person. We were both in debt, and it was paid, and so now you and I have to relate to each other differently, particularly within the church. After all, they're supposed to see our good works and glorify God. So good works including peace and being a peacemaker, love and loving others regardless of what they've done to you. So living self-controlled is shaped by the work of grace in our lives. We're being trained. Nope, don't do vengeance anymore, Brendan. Do this. Do love. Don't make angry war. Make peace. It's training you to do what might not readily be uh, readily come to mind being upright I think of this as like don't be crooked when Paul describes um, our state in sin in chapter 3 he says we were passing our days in malice and envy this sounds miserable passing our days in malice and envy hated by others and hating one another that's being crooked you know being vindictive and being one way when you're around this group of people and being a different way when you're on your own. And Paul says, you know what? Grace can help you with that. If you respond to that training, grace can make you a consistent Christian. It can make you a consistent follower of Christ. Places where you feel like you could cut a corner in your faith, it will straighten that path out and say, no, choosing Christ is better than what you're about to choose. This might be the hardest, though. Grace also is going to train us to live a godly life in the present age, Paul says. And a lot of times, I just wish, like, Christ, I accept you, and you pull me out and put me in a place where everyone follows you, and we all get along, and all have the same ideas, and all have the same politics, and all have the same beliefs, and never disagree anymore. Paul's saying the, the hard part about this is going to be this is for right now. But you know that you need this right now. You know that there's no better time than now to have grace shaping you and changing the way you interact with each other because this is a world without it. We live in a time we've actually called cancel culture. We want to write people off. 
because we disagree with them. Grace is the exact opposite of that. It doesn't mean I have to take on your beliefs and endorse them, but it means I'm going to change the way I react towards you because of what I know was done for me. Right now, we do this in the present age, Paul says. So after you've questioned, asked that question of, of your response to the salvation opportunity, that prerequisite, if, again, if that first part isn't true of you, I'm glad you're here. This is where you need to be. You need to hear that Christ died in your place, and we're going to talk about that here where Paul beautifully sums up what we call the gospel. But if you have accepted Christ, then you know that that is now where you are rooted. You are rooted in grace. This tree that you are is planted in a massive field of grace, and it's going to equip you, train you to produce this fruit that we'd be incapable of doing on our own. So the second thing you need to know is that grace trains us. So how is this sustainable? You know, this is good for a little while, where, you know, you can, each of us can kind of manufacture some self-control for a little while and, and last for a little bit. When I used to cut firewood at our old place, I cut a tree down and had about a 10-foot chunk of this maple log in my backyard that I didn't process. And the next spring, the branches spouted out buds and leaves. It was not rooted, not connected to a tree, clearly dead, but thought it was alive. Well, it was capable for a short time of sprouting leaves. Problem is, it had nothing to sustain it. Obviously, as you know, without me telling you, those leaves withered up and died, and that trunk became firewood and dried out and burned. So Paul says, you have to have something that sustains you. So as you are trained, you know, every trainee wants to know what the goal is. Everyone participating in some kind of diet or exercise routine or life skills class or training program at work wants to know, hey, tell me what it's going to be like when I make it. Tell me what it's going to be like when all of this work becomes worth it. Well, Paul says, Titus, I need to tell you because you're not going to feel like doing it unless you know. You're not going to feel like doing this work and, and partnering with grace in your life to see this transformation unless you know something is going to change. Paul knows this better than anybody if you know his story, but he says we are waiting for the blessed hope. We're doing this in the present age as we expect something better. This blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Paul can say this because he knows what it's going to look like. He had this happen to him. If you remember Paul's story, he hated Christians. He was on this imprisonment run from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest Christians in a town called Damascus. And before he could even get there, he's out there fighting for God, defending the faith, the Jew, uh, Jewish faith. Before he could get there, he was struck blind and knocked off of his horse, and Christ appeared before him and said, Paul, why do you persecute me? And Paul realizes right then and there that the God he thinks he's been fighting for, he's been fighting against. And at that moment is humbled, and his life is just radically changed by the grace of God. Imagine all of the other things that could have happened to Paul. He gets robbed and killed on the road to Damascus. He shows up to Damascus and gets killed. God strikes him dead instead of striking him blind. All of the things that could have happened, but instead, in his grace, God reveals himself to Paul, much like he does to us in his text. So he says, this is going to happen again, and this is what we're hoping for, is all of this work will have a result, and that is going to be, Christ is going to return and call us to him. So do this now with that hope. This will sustain us. So why does Christ matter? In case people are hearing about Christ from Titus and need to know the good news of what Jesus actually does, 
Paul sums up the gospel wonderfully here in a couple words. And we're going to go through this because sometimes in church you hear words like sanctification, purification, redemption, salvation, and we, we have to do a good job of breaking down what that actually means for you. Paul does it wonderfully here. He says, who gave himself for us? Jesus is the who here. He gave himself for us. So if you ever hear somebody talk about a substitution, substitutionary death, those types of things, this is Jesus in Brendan's place. Jesus in your place. So this is how Jesus is a substitution for us. And he willingly gave himself for us. Like a, a lamb led to the slaughter, he was silent. So Paul continues, not only did he give himself for us, but he uses this picture that reminds us of that captivity to sin. And he uses this word redeem. So think about redemption as like paying a ransom, where you're the ransom in this case. Jesus comes to us, pays our ransom to bring us out of, self, out of, out of sin and lawlessness, but is himself the ransom. So he's substitutionary, and then people use the word propitiation, this payment for, for our imprisonment, to release us from this imprisonment. It continues, though. It's not done there. And I think Paul says these next couple phrases to almost prove to Titus the idea of grace. You want to see God's grace actually in action in this passage? Actually, how does God's grace work and train even in the gospel story? Well, it's by doing these steps. He purifies us. He says, I'm going to work within you as if I always have. I'm going to make you what you started out being. Before you turned to sin, rebelled against me, I'm going to restore you to that by purifying me, by cleansing me internally as grace goes through and says, don't do this, do that. Your sins are paid for, so don't bind yourself to that anymore. Live free, but within Christ. So sometimes you'll hear the word purification and sanctification. And that comes in in this passage where sanctification is God setting us apart for himself. Paul says he's going to do this. He's going to clean you up and separate you in a way that you could never do yourself. Because reality is our flesh does not want that. Our flesh would not do that on our own. That's why we don't believe in this church that you can earn your salvation. That is purely and wholly by his grace that you are purified to begin with and that now you are separated. And for a people, Paul says, and listen to the unity in this. He says, all of us, like, like I said earlier, grace is this even playing field. It enables this unity where he says, you and I were all purchased by grace, by the payment of Christ's blood. And he's bundling us up and separating us out of this world, a people for his own possession. How he used to refer to Israel is this possession, his treasured possession. He refers to you and I now because of buying us with Christ. He's going to continue to do this work in you and I. So what's this definition? How do we know that we're having effective responses to this training? You can tell a person who's doing a diet. You can tell a person who's on a workout plan. You can tell a person who's on their first week in a job and on their 13th week on the job because something has changed. And now, in, changed, and now instead of being zealous for self-fulfillment and my personal passions and the worldly passions and ungodliness, I'm zealous for good works. Grace is going to continue to work inside of you. And the good news is, like I said earlier, grace is eternal. On the days you don't do this, God has grace for you, but he desires that you are zealous for good works, not that you stay 
where you were at when he came and claimed you. So this last verse gave me trouble, and as Pastor Nathan and I dis- discussed it earlier this week um, with a couple other folks, I said, this, this seems out of place, but we know nothing is out of place in God's word, and it really helped me understand when we take grace and apply it to this last verse, how we can do things graciously. And I would submit this is, this is what I think Paul is saying here for us, is Titus in pastoring church and being a church body, there are a lot of things that you can spend your time on. There are a lot of things that you can pursue individually in your own life, thinking that this are a part of a Christian life, and, and many of them are. We have wonderful Bible studies, children's programs here, worship services, thankful for every aspect of this church family and for all the individuals here. But he says, don't forget this. Don't miss grace. If grace is forgotten along the way, if you do a lot of other things well, but you forget grace, you're going to forget the reason why we're all here to begin with. So start by declaring this and make sure it's clear. And then have an ability to correct people as they're trained that's shaped by grace. So if if grace has made such an impact in me and I understand, wow, all of my sin for all time is still covered by his grace. All of everyone's sin for all time is still covered by his grace. All of the sin that I will do in the future is still covered by his grace. If I understand the enormity of his grace, that can shape the way that I correct individuals that I know, that we speak to each other in a church family, that we interact with each other. Our rebuking and our our teaching can be shaped even by that knowledge of grace. So let no one disregard you. A couple times, as Paul talks to Titus, he says there's going to be People who will try to argue with you that will not be able to argue with this. They will not be able to argue with sound doctrine. And I think he's saying the same thing here. You can't write off when you've been shown incredible grace by someone. It will make an impact. So just show that grace to them, Titus. Just show that grace to them. Now, don't enable them. That's one of the criticisms of grace, right? That's why he says, rebuke them with all authority. Correct people when they are doing improper things. But show them grace, and they will not be able to disregard you. Now, I know that grace is challenging, and grace requires God's grace for us to even understand. But I think Paul is closing this section by saying, out of all the stuff you could get tied up in, wrapped up in, Titus, of all the things that become a part of being in a church family, living a Christian life, all the things that are marketed to you to do as a Christian, just die on this one hill. Die on the hill of grace. If you're going to fight for something, fight to make sure that you're talking to people, that you're living, that you're parenting, that you're working under grace and die on that hill. So let's reflect on this because we want what we talk about today and and what God shows us through his word to shape us as grace shapes us throughout the week. And I just want to hard stop right now and tell you the first part of this passage is the most important part. It's the prerequisite for everything else. If you don't have that, This is all going to be foreign, and and you might be like that leaf on the log that blooms for one season, and then the log dries up. There's no connection to life. If If you don't think about that first verse, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And so I just want to ask, have you responded to that? There's people here, statistically, that haven't. And like I said at the beginning, this is where we would want you to be. I'm glad you're here. But please don't miss the opportunity to ask, okay, have I done this? This is what we mean when we say Christ is our Savior. 
we've asked this question, have I responded to this saving grace? And if your answer is no, or you don't know, we'd love to talk to you. That would be the one, most wonderful thing. And that will be what will lead you to the rest of this passage. Once you understand just this depth of grace that God has shown you, it'll help you understand how you can possibly begin to show it to other people. Because it's really hard. But knowing that part helps with the second part. And then we have to respond to training, right? I'm just thinking about the idea that, that it's possible to see this, to read it, to understand it, to see it in other people, but never even respond. So we have this tool that we love you guys. We want these things to last throughout the week um, and try to make God's word applicable while we're up here through the worship service and through our midweek Bible study. So this is just a tool that's in your bulletin. If you take a moment just to pull it out of your bulletin so I know people have it. Styled it like a report card. And it's just an opportunity for you to reflect on this passage this week, whether you have it in your own personal private time or we made it small enough so you could throw it on your fridge or your bathroom mirror, maybe the dash of your car. Because I know these things are hard, church family, because I've had to study this passage for a week, and I could tell you that it's sobering. But what I do know is some self-reflection is helpful. So we've made this chart, and over on the left-hand column is all the topics in verse 12, the places grace is going to train you. Paul says this is, this is going to happen. This is in the Word of God. It, it, it is going to happen. Grace is available to train you in these categories. And so I would just ask you on a nightly basis or even after this week, regardless of what happens, because we don't know what we're all headed into this week. If you threw this up on your fridge and you just asked, okay, this week, how did I renounce ungodliness? Now you might have had a week where it didn't really come up. Or you might have had a week where you were just assaulted by ungodliness or temptation. This is where resist the devil and he will flee from you comes in. Temptation comes, well, how did I renounce ungodliness this week? Maybe this week you'll, you'll read this card and you'll say, how did I live self-controlled this week? And it'll help you remember, ah, you know, I have to apologize to so-and-so. I was not gracious. In that conversation, I forgot this grace that was shown to us. So the good news is whether you do well or you do poorly, as you reflect on this, this isn't for guilt, this isn't for uh, condemnation. This is for aiding you, aiding us in responding to this training. The good news is that God's grace itself is eternal. So as we do well or struggle in these categories, if you want better understanding of what these mean, what they look like played out in the Christian life, what the dangers are, especially the verse about self-control in Proverbs, read that, it's very sobering. It says, a man without self-control is like a, a city without walls. Okay, so read these passages and they will help you understand what these things would look like if they were showing up, if they were present in your life. And this is just something, again, because we love you and we want to give you practical homework, if you will, to aid in stretching this text over your week and applying it. This might be helpful as you leave. If nothing else, I've entitled it so corny that maybe you'll remember to ask yourself, what is your grace grade? As you go about your day, what's my grace grade right now? If I had to grade myself... How would I do? And again, just a final reminder, this grace exists for you for salvation. If you don't know that, please come talk to one of us. We'd love to walk you through that. And last, it also exists for training. And God is a gracious, patient trainer. He only wants you to thrive. We want you to thrive. And we want to point you to him. Let's pray. 
Father, thankful for the time in your word, and I just pray that you spoke uh, through this time and that they would recall um, the message your Holy Spirit had for them today. Help us to see places where we need to respond to training of grace and um, prepare us for opportunities to show grace this week that we may or may not seek out and that may come to us in this, in this life ahead. And I just ask you to um, build us up, strengthen us with the hope of your son's return as we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.